The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark, chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. The word of God speaks to us. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is God's word to us. All right, thank you, sis. Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. Uh, my name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Frontline. And uh, as usual, we're going to pray together, me for you, you for me. And so let's pray with and for one another. Father, we thank you for your grace. And then we ask as we look at your word, the Bible this morning, that the Spirit of God, you would help us. Jesus, we, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would be lifted up in our hearts and our lives as we listen to what you have to say. We want each of us, regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, to be drawn close to you. We pray, Spirit of God, you would help us be filled with faith. And, and specifically, I just pray that you would help me help my friends. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said, amen. Well, as Rhonda read the text, uh, one thing is clear, if you were listening closely, that Jesus is trying to drive home. Anybody pick up on it? He says like three times in about five verses here, stay awake, which is hilarious because it's Daylight Saving Sunday, right? I've got so many dad jokes that just, I'm ready for it. It's just like, I wish I could have planned this, but I don't have those kind of skills. I wish I could take credit. It's just God has a sense of humor that as we gather this Sunday where many of us are more tired than we might usually be on a Sunday morning, we have a really simple application that we're at church and it's good to stay awake. I'll do my best to keep us awake, but if you, if you, don't, if you do go to sleep, we've got coffee, you know, it's, I'm not going to be mad is what I'm going to say. If I I see somebody sleeping during one of my sermons, which I do see sometimes. <laughs> and it does hurt my feelings a little bit. But I go to, you know, I, I just think like positively, I guess. I try to be compassionate. I, I, I create a narrative. I'm like, that guy's an ER doctor and he was up all night saving lives. <laughs> or that person has a new baby, you know, the 120th Psalm, like the Lord gives his beloved sleep. So it's okay if you, if you must go to sleep. There are worse places to fall asleep than church. I was driving downtown this week multiple times. I usually don't go town a lot, downtown a lot, but this week for various reasons I was continually having to drive downtown on on you know going south on Broadway extension and I I came across, you know, it was hard to miss the, the, the I, I, whoever's in charge of the highway, they had this sign up in preparation for today, right? And I got a picture. I pulled off to the side of the road. Just no, I didn't. I took a picture while I was driving. 
which you shouldn't do, but it was too good of a sermon illustration for me to pass up. So, uh, but it, it, you, you see what it says. Spring ahead with safe driving. Don't drive drowsy, right? So I, I've got something here. I didn't mean to put it so far away. I've, uh, if you've been at Frontline for a while, I've showed, this, you this to, I've showed this to you before. It's one of my most prized possessions. It's the broken grill of a 1998 Jeep Grand Cherokee, right? So my, my daughter's in the back, and she saw this out last night, and she asked me, Jubilee, like, what's, why do you have a broken car grill? And so I'm surprised I've never told you this story, Jubilee, and I'll tell, I'll tell everybody this story. Why I love that grill so much is I was about 18 years old. I worked constructions with my friend Justin over the summer. We would get up very early and clean up construction sites. And, uh, and so we're both driving home. He's driving in his Jeep Grand Cherokee. We're driving northbound on I-35 and we're beat. We've been working hard all day. I'm leaning back in his car nearly asleep and Justin is asleep. So 75 miles an hour, we go off I-35. We roll three times and, and miraculously, we both walk away with, with minor injuries. So I keep this around as just a reminder. It's a rock of remembrance. It's a, a, what the Old Testament calls an Ebenezer, just to, to remind my own heart that, that God is good and gracious, and he saved my life in more than one way. And yet, it's a reminder to us this morning that there are dangerous places to fall asleep. In some cases, falling asleep can be disastrous can be deadly. And Jesus is telling us in this text again and again and again, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake in love because there's a real true danger to our spiritual lives if we're lulled to sleep. And so what does Jesus mean in this warning? Well, I want to go back to the context of what's happening here and let's get our bearings real quick looking at Mark chapter 13. We've been going through the gospel of Mark for nearly a year as a church. We're actually going to wrap up the gospel of Mark in a few weeks, April 17th, Easter Sunday. We're going to be meeting at Mitch Park again, and we're going to wrap up Mark. We're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. We're also going to celebrate by completing this series that we've been in for about a year with the resurrection. But we've slowed down a bit going through the Gospel of Mark, and this is our third week in the 13th chapter of Mark. And, and Mark 13 is notoriously kind of difficult to understand and difficult to teach. And one of the reasons it can be difficult to understand or, and teach is there's disagreement among many Christians about what this chapter is saying regarding the last things or end times. The, the big theological word for that is eschatology. And the subject of eschatology is really important because the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible and writes a lot about the end times. It matters. It's a part of the Christian faith. And so since this chapter speaks to it, and a lot of the conversation interpretation around Mark 13 centers around eschatology, we've seen fit to, as, a, as a teaching team, slow down and, and really dig in to 
this 13th chapter of Mark. And as we've said before, our hope is that there are answers to questions as we preach on this chapter, but also expect that maybe new questions will arise or you'll still be holding on to some old questions that we've all had. So in preparation for that, I want to remind us that Dr. Sam Storms, a dear friend to Frontline Church and lead pastor of Bridgeway down the road, um, he's being so kind and gracious to spend a Wednesday evening with us. That's March 20. 23rd, coming up in a few weeks. It's going to be at Frontline Downtown, our downtown congregation, but all five congregations are invited to, to hear Dr. Storms talk about eschatology that evening and answer some questions we may all have, so mark your calendar for that. And just as a simple reminder, if you've not been here the last couple weeks, it might be helpful to go back and listen to the last few sermons um, about Mark chapter 13. But with that all being said, I want to help us get our bearings. In, in the gospel of Mark, the last two days leading up to what's happening in Mark 13 is that Jesus has been confronting the temple. Now, the temple leadership, the temple system, the religious leadership that, that was not serving the needs but taking from others. And he drove out people taking advantage of, of the poor, both the literal poor and the spiritual poor. And so Mark 13 begins with Jesus exiting the temple, leaving the temple, the center of religious power, the center of religious life for the people of Israel. And his exit isn't just literal, but it's also foreshadowing the judgment of God. Let me remind you what happens. This is how Mark chapter 13 begins, verses 1 through 4. And he, Jesus, came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so Jesus proclaims prophetically something that these men thought impossible. This wonder of the world, the temple, one stone in the temple. Archaeologists found that it weighed over a million pounds. This building that seemed indestructible, Jesus is prophesying. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be laid waste to. And these men are asking, hey, when is this going to happen? And what will lead up to the events of this destruction? And it's really helpful as we look at Mark 13 to remember that this chapter begins with that prophecy of Jesus and then that that question from the disciples tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished so today's passage is the final part of Jesus's answer to this question and it's popularly popularly understood to be about the second coming the return of Jesus So it's a passage in the Bible where over the years, faithful Christians disagree or come to different conclusions about exactly what Jesus is saying here. And so we're going to look at this passage this morning. And as we look at it, there's three things that I I want us to see. I want to approach it in three ways. The first thing I want us to look at is one certainty that we have. 
And then I want us, secondly, to explore the two interpretations quickly. And then finally, I want us to look at these three charges from Jesus. So first, I want us to see one certainty, two, two interpretations, and three, the three charges from Jesus. And so beginning one, one certainty that we need to to look at. Before we look at these two possible interpretations, one certainty that we need to hold up before us is the certainty that Jesus will come again. Theologians refer to this as the second coming. As I've said, all Orthodox Christians, true Orthodox Christianity, it, it, it all includes the truth of the second coming, the return of Jesus, the physical and the powerful returning of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be the end of history as we know it. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will come again and return to save his people and judge the living and the dead. This makes up the creeds of the church. It's essential to the Christian faith. It's foundational. It's fascinating that if you even begin to read the New Testament, you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done, the accounts of his ministry and his, his death on the cross and his resurrection, that the next book in the Bible, the, the book of Acts, is the beginning in a real way of the church. And look at how the gospel of Acts begins. It begins with the promise of the second coming. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him. So the disciples are, are, are standing with the resurrected Son of God in his glory, Jesus. He's been hanging out and teaching for 40 days on the earth to as many as 500 people at once. And this is this final conversation they have with him. And they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, he said to them, it is not not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, whom was taken up from you into heaven, He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So right after Jesus ascends, understandably, of course, right? These men have borne witness to wonder. They've, they've, They've touched and felt and spent time with and broken bread with and shared meals with Jesus risen from the dead. They've seen wonder upon wonder. And here, once again, there's more wonder. He's charging them to go proclaim the good news of who he is and what he's done. And then a cloud envelops him, and Jesus begins to lift up into the sky. And of course, what are they going to do but just stare, right? This is not something they've ever seen before. So they're just, I imagine, for a long time. And to me, you know, I'm using my redeemed imagination, but this story reads funny. You heard me chuckle, right? Because I just imagine all these men staring into the clouds until Jesus is out of sight, and then there's silence and wonder, and then these men in white robes, right, are are angels, all commentators are going to tell us, and they're like, hey, what are you guys looking at, you know? 
And I just imagine them all freaking out and being scared. You know, all these, these, these messengers of, of, of heaven are with them and saying, hey, you can stand here and stare forever, but one day he's going to come just as you saw him ascend. He's going to come visibly and powerfully. It's reiterated in the, be- the beginning of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Why is John, the author of Revelation, saying here and recording that people are going to wail upon the second coming of Jesus? What would cause people to wail on account of Jesus' second coming? Well, Mark has made it really clear that upon the the first coming of Jesus, that he came to, to not be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to lay his life down. He came to offer salvation and make a way for salvation. He came to seek and save the lost, Scripture tells us. But upon his second coming, yes, he's coming to to seek and save those who are in Christ, but he's also coming to judge and condemn those who have rejected and, and run and rebelled continually from him. That's why... For 2,000 years, the message of the church has, has been a call to all people to stop running from God, start running to God. He is waiting for you. He has made a way for you. He loves you so much that he, the Son of God, Jesus, laid his life down so that you may have life. And your life, when it ends, will not result in you standing before him as judge and giving him a list of all your great accomplishments as to why you will have earned eternal life to spend with him forever. Then nobody, none of us can earn our way into glory and heaven. But the, the clear and beautiful promise of Scripture is that work, has done, that work has been done for us in Christ Jesus, that he did the work, that he, it, it's his righteousness that's gifted it to us. We can't earn it, but we receive it as a free gift when we follow him and love him and put our faith in him as king. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, you're just exploring Christianity, the second coming is, is an invitation, a call to, to put your faith in Jesus because each and every one of us will give an account. Either we're going to him or, or he's coming to us. And if we're a Christian, the message of the second coming is a reminder that how we live matters It's not just some irrelevant fact that will happen one day in the future that we ought not keep in our hearts. It means that how we live our lives now really matters. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. So the way we live now influences how we're rewarded when Jesus returns. If you just read, this is good homework. If we want to go home and and read Revelation 22, the last chapter in Scripture, it will strike us that three times Jesus is going to say, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon. We just looked at Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I'm coming soon to bring my recompense with me. And nearly the last verse of Scripture, Revelation 22, 20, Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon. And the apostle of love, the apostle John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. 
So the return of Jesus is the eager expectation for the Christian. But that kind of begs the question, it's like, what's, what's the holdup? <laughs> it's been 2,000 years, why hasn't Jesus come? Well, the Apostle Peter, he answers this question. He had, speaks to it specifically in the, his second letter to the church, 2 Peter chapter 3. And he's warning Christians, and he says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Scoffers going to scoff, is what the Apostle Peter says, following their sinful desires. And they're going to scoff by saying, where's this promise coming? Where's Jesus? What's the holdup? And Peter says this in in verse 8. He says, this is important for us to hold on to. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter's writing to the church, and he's saying, hey, look, your perception of time and the perception of time of the creator of the universe is a little different. Like my perception of time is a little different than my three-year-old, right? Blow that out exponentially. The creator of everything, all-powerful God who's outside of time, right? Hasn't been long to him. He can say in fullness, I'm coming soon. But this is really beautiful. What is he saying? The apostle Peter is saying that, that that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, that, that plainly that Jesus hasn't returned yet because he's still at work seeking and saving the lost. That millions of more people will know him as Savior and Lord and King and know eternal life in him. So with that one certainty, Jesus is coming again established. Let's look at these verses in Mark 13, and look at two interpretations, two interpretations, and it boils down to this. What Jesus is saying here from where we stand in Edmond, Oklahoma, 2022, what Jesus is saying here, is this about the future? Is this about his second coming? Or is it about the past? Is it the events that happened that the rest of Mark chapter 13 speaks to? Let's look again at Mark 13, 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And so the challenge in a real way is throughout, throughout history that very intelligent, faithful, smart women and men who are godly and really honor Scripture have come to approach this passage and come away with two very plausible but two very different interpretations. And again, it, it, it kind of centers around a turn in verse 32. Is this about the second coming of Jesus, something in the future, or 
was Jesus speaking to the events that would happen between 33 AD, his death and resurrection, and the destruction of the temple, one of the most significant historical events of all time. And there are good reasons for both interpretations. So let me just give you a few. Here's option one. This passage is about the second coming. Well, theologians that believe this is about the second coming, one reason is the word day here is often, you know, referring to the second coming, shorthand for the second coming in the New Testament. I find this really compelling, personally. So here's a few examples. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus is speaking. On that day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's the Apostle Paul writing to, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's talking about the second coming. Or how about the Apostle Paul again, talking about the end of his own life and the second coming of Jesus in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so, again, it's compelling to me that that same language that Jesus uses here in, in Mark chapter 13, that apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit use in other places in the New Testament to refer to the second coming. Some good homework might be to read the parallel account of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And it seems, as I read that, and to many others, to point to the final return of Jesus. And so some theologians believe that there's a change, there's a shift that happens in this passage of Scripture, that, yeah, Jesus is talking about the events that will happen in the coming years between his death and resurrection and the destruction of the temple, but then he begins to prophesy far ahead to the second coming in verse 32. But here's option two. Other scholars, theologians, believe that Jesus is speaking about the events that happened in 70 A.D., and the language isn't a change, but it's just an answer to the question. So when Jesus says, but concerning that day or hour, he's still answering the same question the disciples have been asking from the beginning of this chapter. Remember, the question is first, tell us when these things will be. And so when Jesus says, hey, on that day, he's specifically answering their first question. He isn't just randomly changing the subject on the disciples. So which is it? Is it? about the second coming, or is it about the events, the historical events of 70 AD? Is it about the future, or is it about the past? Well, here is brilliant theologian Sam Storms in his article, The Temple is Raised and the Sun Returns. Dr. Storms says, our Lord is clearly moving from the subject of Jerusalem to its temple and its temple to that of a second coming. And here is brilliant theologian N.T. Wright in his book, Mark for Everyone. The first level meaning clearly is once more about the imminent destruction of the temple. This is the subject of the entire chapter. They're both clear. I'm not so clear. I'm, I'm clear about one thing that I'll bring us to, right? That 
this subject requires humility, teachability. For what it's worth, I, I lean towards the position that sees this entire chapter as a reference to the events that occurred in 70 AD. But I'm not going to die on that hill. There's things that are non-negotiables for me. The divinity of Jesus. The Trinity. The inherency of Scripture. The continuing gifts of the Spirit at work in the church. These are hills that we as a church are going to plant our flag on. The specific exact meaning of Mark 13, 32 through 37. I'm rem reminding the words of one of my heroes, the pastor, Alistair Begg, who says, the, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. It sounds better in a Scottish accent. <laughs> I'll spare you. So the good news is, what's beautiful about this portion of scripture is that regardless of whether we land on it being about the second coming or about the historical events of 70 AD is I believe the application is the same for us. How we respond and how we apply it to our lives regardless of where we land, it's, it's beautiful because if it isn't about the second coming, it's still a type and shadow of how we need to live in light of the second coming. That leads me to a third thing we need to see. Three charges. Stay awake. Three times again in this verse, as we've seen again and again, the charge from Jesus is to stay awake. Verse 33, be on guard. Stay awake. 35, therefore, stay awake. Finally, verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Your Bible might say, be watchful or be alert. The message is the same. The greatest danger to us that we face in our lives between the first coming of Jesus and his final return is to be asleep at the wheel of our spiritual lives. It's disastrous. It's dangerous to be lulled asleep. And so plainly what that means, I mean, there's such rich application for what staying awake looks like. We could talk for a really long time about everything that that means for us to stay awake as followers of Jesus. Simply, I think it just means living out the mission that we have as a church, which we didn't make up. It comes from the charges of Jesus in, in the New Testament to love God, to be people of worship, to love people, to serve others like Christ has served us. To push back darkness, to in words that we share and in deeds as we serve others, to proclaim the goodness of the gospel. But as I was just, just devotionally meditating on this text and, and just spending time in it these coming weeks, for me, one of the things I did was just look for that phrase throughout the rest of the New Testament. Where are other charges where the authors of Scripture told the followers of Jesus to stay awake? And for my own heart, and hopefully for us this morning, I've got some application for us as to what it looks like in Edmond in 2022 to, to live wide awake as we follow Jesus. Staying awake means prayerful dependence on God. And we're going to get to this in a little bit, but just in the next chapter, Mark 14, the context is Jesus is praying with his friends, his disciples in the garden. It's the night before he's going to go to the cross. And his charge again to them is stay awake, stay awake. 
Jesus says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. And then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? And again, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, it struck me this week that how Jesus is praying in the garden here is how he teaches us to pray in the Sermon sermon on the Mount. Prayers that, that are focused on the heart of saying, hey, Father, take my heart, take my dreams, take my will, and you take them and you give me your dreams, your will, your wishes, your way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus prays in the garden, Father, not my will, but your will. So what would it look like for us to pray as people wide awake? Heavenly Father, I want to believe what you believe about money. Take my heart and my views of my stuff and my treasure and give me your heart and your views for your stuff, your your treasure that you've given me stewardship over. Heavenly Father, take my heart and my view of my sexuality and give me your heart and your view of my sexuality. Heavenly Father, I have a a heart about marriage and a view, but I'm going to lay that down before you. You created marriage. I want to hold in my life your heart for marriage. Jesus, I confess that others are, are people that I see is in my way and obstacles. Give me your heart for others, your compassion. The second thing that struck me this week is staying awake means actively waiting to serve. Let me read to you Luke chapter 12, verse 35 through 37. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Listen to this. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Like it's a beautiful way that the, the script is flipped on a servant. They're waiting and ready to serve the master. And when he comes f- finding them ready, ready to serve, he says, hey, you put your feet up. I'm actually going to serve you. It's the heart of Jesus. I was reminded, Anna, um, of and Jubilee. Jubilee, when you were born, our firstborn, um, it was a long labor. Your mom was in labor with you for a while. And I got really worn out watching mommy give birth to you. It was really, I was tired. And so after you came into the world, we got sent to this recovery room. And, um, and mommy laid down with you in bed. And I sat on this chair. And, uh, and I fell asleep because I was so tired. Um, and so that was not a good move. Because you were like a few hours old and mommy needed daddy to be there to help and serve. And so, you know, I'm sitting there just like snoring and, and what, your mom needed help, you know. And so Anna was like throwing stuff at my head, you know, just like <laughs> anything she could find. She's whisper yelling, David, you know, and I'm just out. Totally unhelpful, totally unready to serve, Right. And so if you're an expecting father, what, here's a discipleship moment. The only time I drink energy drinks is immediately after one of my other children have been born. And I'm awake for like 24 hours, just like, what can I do? What do you need, right? You know, just ready to roll. 
That's what Jesus is getting out here. Are we dressed for action? Are we awake, ready to serve? In Matthew 25, the gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us what that looks like. What does it look like to serve Jesus? Well, Jesus says it looks like feeding the hungry, giving a drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, caring for the sick, visiting the prisoner. He says, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. So simply put, staying awake means serving those in need and loving the family of God. So I'm asking myself this week, I think we should all ask ourselves in this moment, where am I serving people in need? How am I wide awake by having eyes open and being ready to serve and love others for the glory of Jesus? And then lastly, staying awake means prayers loaded with gratitude. The Apostle Paul writes to the early church in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, and he says this, Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Isn't that interesting? Devote yourselves to prayer and, and stay awake, stay alert. It's the same word there that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 13. And you can stay, stay alert. You can be wide awake spiritually by having a prayer life that's saturated with thanksgiving. And maybe you're not like me, but I know in, in my life, like I don't drift towards gratitude. I don't accidentally end up grateful often, you know? It's a discipline or it's obviously a work of God in me leading me there. And, and there are, this is what one author said. He said, ingratitude may be the yeast that makes American culture in this moment rise. Meaning that it's really easy to hear a message that leads you to feeling discontent and and ingratitude about life in general. Like any advertisement, you know, not any, but most, I, I would say, it's a message of ingratitude. You thought you were happy, but you are not happy until you take a vacation to Branson. <laughs> you thought you had the good life, but you do not have the good life yet. You got to come to Branson. Or you, you thought you were happy, but you are vacuuming your own living room. You need this robot to do it for you. Then you will be happy and content. You can be grateful, right? Anything, right? You know? Or even like political discourse from any party. You know, you're, when you listen to that favorite political podcast, do you wrap it up and think, I'm so grateful? <laughs> you know? Or do you think, like, I'm not going to be grateful or happy until those people are out of power and this agenda is fully in place and I can't be happy until that's a reality? I can't be thankful. There's no place for gratitude. I know I'm meddling. I apologize. Not really. There's a, a professor, Joseph Ria, he wrote an article called Gratitude is Hard to Do. Help me a lot this week, and this is what he said. I'm just going to skip to the last thing because it's the sweet spot. Our culture assumes that normal people operate with a consistent level of discontentment. We think that real equals dissatisfied. We definitely don't want to live with a Botox spirituality that papers over real problems with a smile, but we don't want to steer so far from that ditch that we fall into its opposite. 
our society's gravitational pull is already towards ingratitude. And so what Paul is saying to the early church and what the Spirit is saying through his words to us in this moment is one way that we can take that energy drink (laughs) and stay awake spiritually is, is to have the discipline of helping us not just like try to be positive and, you know, divorce our prayer life from reality. No, 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 no. It's, it's actually seeing reality and saying there are thousands of ways that God is good to us. Even in the midst of pain and struggle, there are thousands of ways in which God is good to us and we have reason to give thanks. And, and that does not mean that a healthy prayer life isn't full of supplication, isn't full of asking for things. This is true. God cares about things that nobody else cares about. There's, there's no prayer request that is too trite for him. Like any little thing. You want to pray for a parking spot? Pray for a parking spot. I'm fine with that, right? You pray for any little thing and our Heavenly Father isn't bothered or put out by his children. So ask, share needs. And yet a rich prayer life that keeps us awake spiritually, Paul is saying, also includes the multitude of ways we can say thank you God for And so maybe real practically, maybe instead of like taking one meal a year where we share what we're thankful for in prayer, just thank God for Thanksgiving. Maybe what it would look like in in community group as you gather for family meals every once in a while or as a family, as you get around the table, you make a discipline to say, hey, we're going to pray and and what we're going to do is we're just going to lift up prayers of gratitude to our Heavenly Father. Or we're just going to live out the discipline in our personal devotional life when we're driving home from work or we're coming back from dropping the kids off that we're going to turn off the radio and say, hey, Father, I want to just spend five minutes telling you what I'm thankful for today. And let's do that now. Let's just stand and pray and end with prayers of gratitude. Father, we, we come together in unity and we just say thank you for your word. Word that reads us as we read it. Father, we thank you for one another. That you've loved us enough to to save us into grace and a kingdom. That we're adopted as sons and daughters when we're in Christ. The heavenly father. We have a king who is our big brother. And yet you, you bring us into family together. So I thank you for the gift that we are to one another as a church. We thank you for the city that you've placed us in. We thank you for little things like good weather and good company. We thank you for the greatest of things like Jesus, your gift of your life on the cross. And we ask, thankfully, that you would grow us in our gratitude, grow us in our service, Grow us in our our prayerful dependence. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said, amen.